if you're truly going to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you'll have a new life with new loves. That's one way we can phrase the great lesson that we can learn from this encounter that this man had with Jesus on this particular day. In Mark's account of this real event, we discover only towards the end of the encounter that Jesus has with this man, at verse 22, that the man who has come to Jesus is very rich. And the way the account is written, uh, when you're reading it for the very first time, it makes quite an impact upon you. Because you see what Jesus says to him, and then you discover that it is more pertinent than ever for this particular man because of the great, great riches and wealth that he enjoys. Matthew and Luke employ the same technique. Matthew it is who also lets us know that this was a young man. And Luke's account opens by telling us that this man is a ruler. So, although we don't know his name, we put these three accounts together, and this unnamed man has forever become known as the rich young ruler. By ruler, it is likely that he was the leader of one of the many local synagogues. That's the thought of most commentators. By young, how young is young? Well, most of us like to think we are still young, but how young is young? Well, younger than would normally be expected for someone in his position. Almost certainly going by Jewish culture under the age of 40. Perhaps even younger than Jesus, who of course at this point is in his early 30s. Uh, by rich, he was loaded, we might say today. Uh, presumably, uh, someone who has inherited great wealth through his family. He seems to be spiritually earnest. But as we'll see, being earnest about spiritual things is no guarantee that you are in good standing with God. You can be very earnest, but you can still be utterly lost. And I think that probably describes this man. Earnest, yes, but utterly lost. There'll be many earnest people in hell, you know. Now this morning we consider two particular things and this evening we're going to consider just two again. And here's the first. The problem in this man's question. What must I do? What must I do? What can I do that I may inherit 
eternal life. So by this, the man is talking about further actions that he can take in order to merit eternal life. I wonder if he inwardly thinks, well, I've probably done enough already and hopefully Jesus will just confirm that for me. I wonder if that's what he's thinking. Is he just uh, making sure he's covered all his bases, as we might say? It's difficult to know precisely what what his thoughts were when he's coming. Whatever is going on in this man's mind... Jesus is going to very easily and very efficiently lay bare all of his wrong thinking. And he does that by quoting key aspects of the law to him in verse 19. And of course, uh, most of you won't need me to tell you that he's quoting from the Ten Commandments. And of course, interestingly, he just quotes from those Ten Commandments which particularly refer to his relationships with his fellow man Jesus doesn't yet at this point challenge him about his relationship with God but that is clearly going to become evident later on now when Jesus in verse 19 puts these commandments to him that we're all know quite well don't commit adultery murder, steal telling lies, defrauding honouring father and mother as Jesus puts these things to this young man rather than confessing that he has discovered that actually I find I can't do all this I, I find I can't keep these requirements I've discovered that it's impossible to live up to these things completely and perfectly and consistently because of course that is the reality for all of us isn't it but that's not what this man confesses to it's not the the profession of this young man as he comes to Jesus that God's law has exposed him for who he really is no he says to Jesus I've I've kept these laws from my youth this is me Uh, this is what you find look back in my life he says I've kept the law of God now the fact that he hasn't even begun to keep the law of God is about to be made completely clear well let's think about this for a moment as Jesus presents this man with these laws from the Ten Commandments, God's requirements for men and women. Jesus has just stated to him, and we were considering this topic this morning, weren't we? Jesus has just stated that there is only one who is good. Now the Bible teaches us a lot about us as men and women and boys and girls. It teaches us that none of us are good and it teaches us that none of us therefore, because we're not good, none of us can keep God's requirements of us. None of us can keep his commandments. But which comes first? Keeping the law or being good? 
Now, surely we think to ourselves generally, or we certainly used to when we were in our sin, just like the Pharisees did, if I can keep the law, then I'll be good. So keeping the law comes first, and then I'll be good. In one sense, you could say there's some truth in that. The problem is, though, isn't it? We can't keep the law because we do not have the capacity within us to keep God's law. The sinful nature of our hearts and minds and bodies prevents us from being able to live as God would have us live because we're not good. We're not born good. We can't make ourselves good. We don't have the capacity. All of these things we're taught are spiritually discerned and we don't have that discernment. The capacity isn't within us, in our sin. You see, to be able to keep God's law, you have to be good to begin with. Do you remember the lesson that we learned about a month or so back in Mark chapter 7? We don't start off good. We can't make ourselves good. And at the words of Christ, all of our evil deeds come from within us. Now let's think about Jesus for a second. We read in Galatians chapter 4 that Jesus was born under the law just like we are. As a man... He has to be obedient to the law of God if he's going to live a life that is pleasing to God. He's born under the law. God's law applies to him. That he was required to live in obedience to all that God requires of any man or woman as a man. We also read in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus came to fulfill the law. He didn't come to do away with it. He came to be the fulfilment of it. And that there is a righteousness, and there has to be a righteousness, Jesus teaches there, that is very different to the kind of righteousness that the Pharisees are seeking. And the Pharisees are seeking a righteousness, which is make myself good by keeping the law. Now Jesus kept the law of God. He lived a sinless and perfect life. Everything about his life met with the approval of his heavenly father. And we saw this morning that part of God being good is that it meets with his own approval. And the son met with the approval of the father. This is my son in whom I'm pleased. Jesus is God. And therefore he's good. He's been good from the very beginning. He's been good from eternity past. And because he is God, and because he is good, he was able to live a perfect life. And he was able to obey the the law at every point and all the time. He didn't make himself good by keeping the law. He kept the law because he was good. Jesus is inherently good. All of his nature and his character is goodness. And he proved it by keeping the law and living without sin. 
the goodness came first. The law-keeping followed. The goodness was his nature. Keeping God's requirements was the outworking of that good nature. And that explains why the gospel works the way it does. It's the issue of our sinful heart and nature that needs dealing with. We're only capable of deeds which are tarnished and stained by sin. The very best of our deeds are like filthy rags before a holy and righteous God. All of our deeds are tarnished and stained by sin. But if you've become a Christian, if you've been born again, if you've been made new, you've become a new creation. You've been united to Christ. You've been filled with his life and grace. The righteousness that you have as a believer is not through your keeping of the law. Your righteousness before God, if you're a Christian believer, is Christ's own righteousness. It's his inherent goodness and his perfect life. And it's being placed over you and it covers you. And God now views it as being yours as you share it with Christ. His goodness has been placed upon you. The, the term that the theologians use, it's been imputed to you. So what is his has actually become part of you in God's eyes. And you've been made right with God and he sees you as good now. You're, not, you're no longer the, the filthy, wretched, condemned sinner that you once were. You're a forgiven child of God, clothed in all the righteousness and goodness of Christ. And now, on that basis, now you can begin to embrace the keeping of the law. And the law of God actually has been written in your heart. And to keep it has become your delight. Because of this saving work that God has done in you. That's what makes our the glorious gospel of Christ so different from all other re religions which require you do this, do this, do this, do this. And then maybe, maybe. The Christian gospel puts it completely the opposite way around. No, Christ has done this. And you need to enter into that which Christ has done for you. And by his spirit will do in you. And then you are purely on the basis of Christ, the Christian man or woman that you ought to be. And God's done it all for you. Now, now, live, walk, breathe, move, act like the Christian man and woman that God has made you to be. It's the other way around. Your relationship to the law and your standing before God have been changed in and through the Lord Jesus Christ if you're a Christian. In him, you've been made good. And now, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, you've been created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared beforehand that you might walk in them. 
So in Christ, all your sin is dealt with and you're made good. Now you can begin to live the way you ought to live as one who has newness of life in him. We tend to put it all the other way around. Works which make us good. But the Bible says no. Turn things the other way. Made good in Christ. By Christ. By his grace. And the good works are the outworking of that change that God has wrought in your heart and in your mind. God has done that which only God can do and accomplish in the life of a sinful man or woman. The impossible, indeed made possible by God's grace. So you see, the the thing that Jesus requires of this man lays bare the problem in his question. What must I do? What must I do? You can't do anything. Nothing. It's all of God in Christ. Or you've got nothing at all. And let's expand this further and move deeper into this as this encounter between Jesus and this man continues. The problem of Christ's requirement. Because Jesus knows the heart of this man. Uh, Whatever it was that's going on in this man's mind, we can speculate and we can try and maybe read between the lines a little bit, but Jesus knew. Jesus knew what this man's thoughts were. Jesus knew what the intent of this man's heart was. And Jesus is able to say with absolute certainty and with total accuracy, there's one thing that you lack. What a thing it is. Be on your way. Sell up. Give it all to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven if you do. You've got to weigh that up. Which is the greater for you? Treasure on earth or treasure in heaven? Make your choice. Take up the cross. Because following me will be costly. Take up your cross and follow me. And don't miss those two words in the middle of verse 21. Right at the beginning of verse 21. Jesus loved him. He loved him. Jesus longed that this man would be saved. Jesus longed that this man would heed what he's about to say. He loves him. His mercy and compassion are going out to him. But there's a requirement that can't be ignored. There's no shortcut to being a Christian. Sell what you've got, give to the poor, take up the cross, be satisfied that your treasure's in heaven, let that be enough, follow me. Now we've seen already in this series that to be a follower of Jesus is not just about adding something to what you already have in this life. 
It's not about Jesus giving you that last 10% that you're missing. Perhaps that's the attitude that this man's coming to, to Jesus. There's just that last little bit. Maybe this Jesus can show me what that is. That's not the gospel and that's not what being a Christian is. Becoming a Christian isn't about, I've just got this gap in my life and it just needs to be filled. Everything else is great. But I just need this little gap filling. If God can just fill this little gap, then everything will be hunky-dory, thank you. That's not the gospel. That's not being saved. It's about receiving a brand new life from Christ. And a new life in which all your old priorities, all your old ambitions, all your old affections, all your old desires are completely changed. We've been singing that very thing in some of those hymns. A new life where everything changes. And becoming a Christian can be a very costly thing, even though it's to be received as a free gift of God's grace. It can be costly. Take up the cross. Follow me. For many years in Western countries... I'm talking about recent history. For many years in Western countries, being a Christian, let's be honest, was a fairly comfortable experience. And we knew all too little about counting the cost in following Christ. Let's be honest with ourselves. It's been pretty easy to be a Christian in the UK for the most of the 20th century. Indeed, becoming a Christian was often spoken of only in terms of something that would enhance what you've already got. Language that's found nowhere in the Bible, by the way. The thought of really suffering because you are a Christian in the UK was never really taken very seriously because it was never really considered that it was likely to happen and it was never really considered to be anything of any great significance. And we just felt really sorry for all God's people over there who were suffering. And we wished it wasn't so for them, like it wasn't for us. And for many of us in the Western world, that's what our Christian faith was like. At last, in the West, you might think I'm strange in saying this, at last in the West, And for our good, I believe, we're beginning to rediscover that being a Christian can be a costly experience. For our good. Being a Christian today can put your job on the line. You have to decide what kind of Christian you are. Being a Christian today can bring you face to face with prosecution through the court system for believing even the most basic and fundamental aspects of the Christian faith, like what marriage is. You have to decide what kind of Christian man or woman you are when you're faced with that kind of problem. How important is the word of God to me? How much of a Christian believer am I really? 
Am I really prepared to go through this for Christ? It's no good throwing your hands up in the air and saying, oh, this is awful, how dare they treat us like that? When the Bible says this is what you were called to. Following Christ involves carrying your cross. Jesus said so. But as you do it, you're confident in the treasure that awaits you in heaven. And you know that that is far more valuable than anything that you might lose here on earth. And it's yours for eternity. And that means being ready to let go of everything you have down here. And not always saying you're ready to do it, but actually doing it. Jesus didn't say to this man, be ready Be prepared to go and sell everything. He said, go and do it. Go and do it. Give it to the poor. It means letting go of everything that you have down here, or at least keeping such a loose grip on it that if God decrees that it has to be taken away from you, there is no resistance in your hand. It just slips out. Because your hold on it is so light compared to your grip on Christ. How many of you would ever think of telling people this aspect of the gospel when you're speaking to them for the first time about Christ and what it means to be a Christian? Oh, you can't tell them that. They'll never become one. Jesus did. And we discover from this man that when Jesus puts this to him, I'm not going there. And he immediately puts the brakes on. Oh, hold on a minute. I'm not going there. He can't even begin to contemplate what Jesus has just put to him. Give up my riches, surrender my wealth. And, no doubt, all the reputation that went with it. Everything that I'm known for. Give it away. Let the poor have it. Impossible. Just like Jesus said in verses 23 to 25. Verses that we know very well. About how hard it is for people who are trusting in their riches and whose hope is their money. You see, this man exposes the fact that he is not good. This man exposes the reality that he is no law keeper at all. This man is an idolater at the very core of his being because his love is not for God. This man has never loved God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. He's loved his money and his stuff, and his reputation with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. And he still does. And he has no intention of changing. Thank you very much. They are his gods. That's where his heart lies. And he's not giving them up for anyone. He's an idolater through and through. All of those things are in the place where God should be in that man's life. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear 
that unless there is this change in a man or a woman, they cannot be one of his disciples. Unless there is that kind of change in a man or a woman, they are not one of his disciples because there is not this evidence of one who's been born again. And most tellingly for us, and quite difficult for us, let's be honest, Jesus leaves him to walk away in his sorrow and in his grief and in his frustration and in his disappointment. This is a rich, young man. And we would be thinking to ourselves, what a catch this guy is. What an advert for the gospel this guy's going to be. What credit, what a feather in the cap for our church if we have someone like him on our membership roll. And we're not about to let him walk away. We're going to go after him and we'll fawn all over him until we get him there. Not Christ. Not Christ. This man is not going to repent. He has no place as a follower. He has no place in the kingdom. And he walks away very sad. And Christ lets him. You see, unless and until that man turns in repentance, he's going nowhere spiritually. Because as we've also seen in this series, the message that Jesus preached, the message of of the gospel is repentance of sin. And this man won't. This man can't. And he walks away. This man's bubble has been burst. This isn't the hope I'm looking for. This isn't the message I wanted to hear. And away he goes and Jesus lets him leave. We'll have people like that, you know. We'll have people who come in through that door and we'll rejoice. And our hearts will be lifted and we'll love them like Jesus loved them, I hope. We'll share the gospel with them. And they'll walk out and they'll never come back. And I'm sure Christ's heart was broken. And our hearts will be broken. But they've heard the gospel. They've made their decision. Some of you have heard the gospel and you've not yet made your decision. You've not yet walked out that door for the final time. But one day you might and you might walk out still lost and never come back. I don't want that for you. But we must allow the Bible to keep our focus on what the gospel is really all about. There is a whole load of unbiblical nonsense being said out there. And lost souls are being defrauded and misled by error. It must not happen here. It must not come from your lips. It must not come from mine. We must speak the way the Bible speaks. We need to speak to people the way Christ spoke to people. We need to tell them the truths that Christ told them. Because those truths are the same. Their their need is the same. And the soul that's impacted by Christ is completely changed, you see. The old life is left behind. The cross is taken up. Christ is followed. No matter what it costs. No matter what it's going to take. Because he's worth it and he's worthy of it. And the Christian soul is convinced. 
Now, the story of the tax collector Zacchaeus, who was also a very rich man, as most of you know, ended very differently to this story about this man. And the Bible tells us why. Salvation came to the heart of Zacchaeus. But it hadn't come to this man. You see, Zacchaeus was born again. Zacchaeus was made new. The Holy Spirit moved in him. And more than that, the Holy Spirit moved him. And he was able to respond. And he responded in repentance. And he responded in faith. And you see, the goodness of Christ entered into his soul. And everything changed that very day. Because that's what happens when you become a Christian. That's what happens when the goodness of Christ comes in. That's what happens when you are now one who God looks upon and all he sees is the goodness of his own son. That's what happened to Zacchaeus that day. And his desires, his loves, his motives, his priorities, everything changed. And as far as we can tell, Jesus didn't have to tell him you need to sell up Zacchaeus and you need to make everything right. He knew instinctively as a saved man, my life is not what it needs to be. Things have to change. And he had to relinquish it, relinquish the relationship that he'd previously had with all of his wealth. And he did so gladly. And he did so openly. Remember, it's the love of money, the desire for money. It's putting your trust in money, making wealth your God and your goal. It's not the money itself. It's the love and the desire for these things, which the Bible says is the root of all kinds of evil. And all of a sudden, in Zacchaeus, all those kinds of loves and desires are gone. And it seems to him now, the most obvious thing as a follower of Christ, to part with his vast wealth and to restore that money to the people that he'd taken it from fraudulently. And he does so with great abundance and generosity. Not because Zacchaeus had miraculously managed to make himself good by keeping the law. God, by his grace, in Christ, had made him good. And the evidence was there for all to see. God forgave him and cleansed him and changed him forever. That which was impossible for the rich young ruler, verse 27 of Mark 10, was also impossible for Zacchaeus. But God was at work in the home of Zacchaeus that day. And God did in Zacchaeus that which is only possible for God to do. And he did it. And he was changed. The evidence of God's work is that the object of his love and trust and hope has forever changed. And the proof of it was in his actions that day. Becoming a Christian through repentance and faith by grace. It does mean the assurance of sins forgiven. Isn't that wonderful? It does mean the hope of everlasting life. Isn't that glorious? But becoming a Christian also means that you are right now a new man, a new woman, a new boy, a new girl. And your new identity is as a follower of Christ. 
one who's taken up the cross to follow him. And you're going to do it no matter what. One in whom there is a new life. And one in whom there is now new loves. And might that for each one of us be a vital and effective part of our Christian witness and testimony to the praise and glory of him who first loved us. Our Father, we thank and praise you for your word. We thank you, O Lord, for the privilege of having recorded for us these encounters with the Lord Jesus Christ, for the great privilege of listening on to these conversations that took place, that we might learn, that we might be challenged, that we might be helped. We pray, O Lord, that we might consider all that you've brought to us this evening through your word. Father, we, we might have full assurance in our own hearts that we belong to Christ and he belongs to me. And that our lives might give full evidence of the glorious and wonderful change that you have brought. Because you, in Christ Jesus, have made us to be good and righteous in your own sight. You have done for us that which is impossible for ourselves. But in your great love and mercy, you've shown us the Savior. You've made us alive. And you've given us this new life now to live. Oh Lord, help us to do so joyfully and gladly and faithfully in full obedience to the glory and praise of your great name. And we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.